This morning, we have a significant portion of scripture to look at. We're going to start our reading in Ecclesiastes chapter number three, and we're going to spill over into chapter number four. Ecclesiastes chapter number three, verses 16 will be our launching pad. We also say welcome to Calvary Bible Church. If this is your first time worshiping with us, we are so thankful uh, to have you with our church family today. Ecclesiastes chapter number three, verse number 16 declares, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all of his vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, and that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, verse 1 declares, Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he or she who has not even been born and has not seen evil, seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in the work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I say, vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, uh, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and, and unhappiness and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him or her who was alone when they fall and there's not another one to lift them up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will, 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 will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, for our time together this morning, we want to uh, preach from the subject title, How Will Life Be Lived? I want to pose a question this morning. How will your life be lived? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for allowing me uh, to be able to stand and to be able to get back into your word. God, it is a privilege. It's an honor to be able to open up your word. And I pray over these next few moments, God, as we dig deep, um, God, that you would speak to us in a clear and significant way. Um, God, I thank you that these moments are not about a man. These moments are not simply about a pastor. 
Um, but these moments about are about our, a people who are desperate and a people who desire to hear from you. God, I thank you that your word is living and active, God. Even as I read the passage, God, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to experience a relationship that is found in you. God, help us to not just make sense of the passage, God, but help us to be able to apply the passage in a significant and clear way. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1897, the poet Sam Walter Foss published one of his most famous poems. Um, The poem is titled, A House by the Side of the the Road, and it simply says, There are hermit hermit souls that live withdrawn in the peace of their self-content. There are souls like stars that dwell apart in the fellowness of their firmament. There are pioneer souls that blaze their path where highways never ran, but let me live by the side of the road and be a friend to man. Let me live in a house by the side of the road where the race of men go by, the men who are good, the men who are bad, as good and bad as I. I would not sit in the scorner's seat or hurl the cynic's ban. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and let me be a friend to man. I see from my house by the side of the road, by the side of the highway of life, the men who press with ardor of hope and the men who faint with strife. But I turn not away from the smiles and their tears. Both parts are a part of an infinite plan. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and let me be a friend to man. I know there are brook gladdened meadows ahead and mountains wearisome in height that the road passes on through after a long afternoon and night. But I still rejoice when the travelers rejoice and I weep with the strangers who moan. Nor nor will I live in my house by the side of the road like a man who dwells alone. Let me live in my house by the side of the road where the race of men go by. They are good, they are bad, they are weak, they are strong, wise, and as foolish as I. Then, then should I sit in the scorner's seat or hurl the cynic's man. Let me live by the house, let me live in a house by the side of the road, and let me be a friend to every man. I personally love that poem because it challenges us with the question. How will we live life? How will you live your life? What kind of commitments have you made with your life? Will you just live in such a way where you are uh, an island to yourself? Or will you refuse to live in such a way that you operate as if you are living in the house and dwelling by yourself? I love the gospel message. I love the biblical text because the biblical text reminds us that we were not created to be an island unto ourselves. We were not created to live life and do life by ourselves. You are not created to do life independent from God, or you are not created to do life independent from people. John 17 verse 3 tells us very clearly that, and this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom I sent. We were created once again to know God, but here's the, here's the second part of that. We were also created to make God known. And since we were created to know God and we were created to make God known, that caused us to live in relationship and in community and with fellowship with other people. 
Uh, I know we live in such an individualistic culture and we live in such an individualistic time. I understand the emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus. I get all of that. But when you look at the text, when you look at the Bible, when you look at our our teaching passage for today, we've got to wrestle with, am I doing life by myself or am I doing life in such a way where I'm committed to connecting with other believers? Not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but is my life intricately connected with other people? And am I living my life in such a way where I'm saying, I desire to be a friend to man? When you think about it from that perspective, it does challenge us to ask ourselves some really, really tough questions. Like when I make decisions, when I spend my money, when I order my day, when I organize my schedule, like is am I incorporating a desire to connect with others or am I saying what is best for me? Am I I making a commitment to doing life in such a way where other people are blessed or am I saying what is best for me? And the guy talking this morning has to be honest and say that because life is busy, because I'm tired, because I want to go on a break. I was talking to my brother. Mentally, I'm already on spring break. Like, I'm already gone. I'm worse than the students. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm already checked out because I'm tired and I want to just have some time to myself. But here's the truth. If I have that mindset, how many opportunities am I missing to be a friend to man? If I have that mindset, if I'm, just try, if I'm just checked out, if I'm just concerned about myself, and yes, self-care is important, yes, I've got to do a good job to cultivate my heart, I've got to do a good job to find rest in Christ, but if I live in such a way where I'm just concerned and committed about caring for self, I will live in such a way where I neglect the people who God has placed in my life. So when you look at the text, when you look at the biblical passage that we have this morning, it presents to us an opportunity to live life in such a way where our life brings honor and glory to God, rather than simply living life in such a way that brings honor and glory to self. This is, this is the great... Um, the great struggle that we have as Christians, right? It's the great struggle that we have as believers that we want glory for self. We want glory for Thomas, but, but I've got to shift my focus to where my life is being committed to giving glory and honor to God first. So when you look at the text, when you look at our passage this morning, we see three potential ways to live our life. And the first thing we see is we can live life with comfort. I'll say it again. You and I are able to live life with comfort. Now, if you look at the passage that I read, um, if you just read it quickly, there is no comfort there. When you look at the passage quickly, and when you look at the passage from the perspective of life under the sun, rather than life above the sun, you will be depressed, you will be defeated, and you want to give up hope. But instead of simply viewing life under the sun, if you've missed some of the other sermons, we gotta, we've already established that if we see life under the sun, life under, under the sun is from man's perspective. But there's another phrase, life, uh, life above the sun, that gives us things from God's perspective. When we find things from God's perspective, we see things with God's counsel, we see things through the lenses of God's wisdom, and when we bring, in, when we bring God into the equation, we begin to see the hope and the comfort that we have in God, but also specifically when we have, what we have through Jesus Christ. If you simply operate in such a way, Well, you have concluded 
that the, all that there is to life is life under the sun, then you will be depressed, you will be defeated, and you will not have a victorious life in Christ. If you read the passage that we just read just from the perspective of life under the sun, then you will conclude that there are two essential people at play in the text. There are the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, But when you see life above the sun, we begin to see that God has a perspective and God wants to get involved in the conflicts of our life, that God wants to get involved in the battles of our life, that God is not sitting on the sideline, uh, not interested in the oppressed or the oppressor. But when you look at it, we see that God specifically takes a a side in the issue of oppression in our lives. I want to slow down here because I want this to make sense. There are times in our life where it is very unhealthy for us. Well, let me say it this way. There are times in my life where it is very unhealthy for me to automatically, automatically conclude that God has taken a certain side. When my nation goes to war or when my team takes the field, it would be unbiblical and unhealthy for me to automatically assume that God is favoring who I favor personally. It is unhealthy and unbiblical and irrational for me to think that just because I have more of a vested interest in one side winning over the other, that that automatically God has that same vested interest. That is foolish. But when you look at the topic of oppression, when you look at the topic of injustice, here is a topic that we can rest assured that God 100% takes aside. In Hebrew, the word that we translate oppressed means to be, to become, to, to come down on unjustly. Oppressed means to come down upon unjustly. The word we translate oppression means to act it is an act of subjugating a person to cruelty. Oppression means subjugating a person to cruelty. When the Bible speaks about oppression, it is addressing an unjust, malicious, and vindictive act of cruelty. I'm going to say it again. When the Bible speaks about oppression, it is addressing a malicious and vindictive act of cruelty. And when we consider the issue of oppression, we need to understand that if we get uncomfortable speaking about oppression, then we are uncomfortable with what God has to say. A lot of times in evangelical church, when we hear issues of addressing oppression, we want to assume that it's some a liberal, a non-Bible-believing person who is preaching the social gospel. That's not what the scriptures are communicating. When you look at the text... We, we, we preach the scriptures because when we preach God's word, we hear God's voice. And when you look at the text, we hear God's voice on the issue of oppression. When you look at the text, we hear that God has said in his word that he takes a stand against any form of oppression. God is not in favor of any malicious acts of cruelty toward any person that fights against injustice. If you have an issue with that, if you have an issue with what I'm saying, you have an issue with what God has said, not what Thomas is saying. If you are unfamiliar with what God has said about oppression, then I want to submit to you that you are unfamiliar with what the Bible has said about oppression. 
If you think that the issue of oppression is something that is man-made and conjured up, it's something that God does not address, it's something that God ignores, it's something that God kind of skips over, you are totally missing what the full counsel of Scripture consistently addresses. Just go back to the Old Testament. You see many of the messengers and spokesmen that God raised up specifically dealt with the issue of oppression. Truth is, God consistently sent a messenger to speak truth to power in the text. If you go back to Amos chapter number four, verse number one, uh, it speaks about those who oppress the poor. If you go to Ezekiel chapter number seven, verses nine and ten, it speaks about showing mercy and kindness. But then in verse 10, it says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the sojourner. That's the foreigner. That's the immigrant or the poor. And let not uh, none of you devise evil against another one in your heart. This is not something that Democrats or liberals have come up with. This is what the scriptures clearly tell us. If you get to the New Testament and you see Jesus, he specifically addresses the issue of oppression. He he specifically addresses people who are harassed without a shepherd. If you go to uh, Matthew chapter number 9, Jesus, looking out on the crowd, he looks out into the crowd. He has compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless. If you go to Luke chapter number 4, and verse 18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight of the blind. Here's the, here's the, here's the point, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now at this point, if we get uncomfortable with talking about oppression, We are not uncomfortable politically. We are not uncomfortable with the pastor. If you are uncomfortable with hearing a sermon or hearing something that addresses the issue of oppression, you are uncomfortable with the words of Christ. You're not uncomfortable with my words. You are uncomfortable with what the text has to say about these issues. Jesus, amen. Jesus did not ignore or look past oppression but he addresses it with prayer and lamenting, but he also addresses it with action. Uh, some might be wondering, since oppression is real, how and, wh- how and when will God respond to the, impression, to the oppression that we see in this world? Verse uh, 16 in chapter number 3 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that there is a place of justice, even there was, and even there was wickedness in the place of righteousness, even there was, um, there was wickedness as well. By giving us verse 16, the author is really applying what has already been said earlier in chapter number 3. He takes the principle that God has an appointed time and season for all things and applies it to the issue of justice. So rather than us being angry or upset or sad, the scriptures are telling us that God has promised a time when justice will be experienced. So we can, we can specifically wait on Amos chapter number 5, verse 24, that says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That is something that believers should expect to experience in our daily lives. I want to make a, a, a very clear statement. Just because God has appointed a time to reveal his justice does not mean that we get a pass on pursuing justice. Just because 
God and his sovereignty has made a decision to ultimately reveal justice in his salvation history. You and I do not get a pass on on pursuing justice today. We all have the responsibility to fight for or to fight against any injustice, whether it's oppression in the church or oppression in the world. But we, and here's the point that we got to really wrestle with, but we must simply move past fighting against the types of oppression that bother. And when we look at the text, we've all got to do the hard work of identifying, okay, here is something that is that is that I'm personally passionate about versus here is what God is passionate about. Because I need to allow my passions to align with God's passions. That means that for some of us, and I hope you are pushed this morning, because I was pushed in my sermon preparation. I hope you're pushed this morning to look at your life and ask yourself, what do I fight hardest for? Okay? And what areas has God determined in his word that are just as important that I ignore? That are just as, that are just as significant that I just kind of... And I hope this morning that everyone feels the tension to move past what is, what is personally uh, a point of preference and we can get to a place to where we say, you know what, God? I, I, need, I, need, to, I, need, to swift, I need to switch my allegiance on this one, right? Because all of them are wrong. All of the things God has spoken about need, we need to address. But if my time, my talent, my energy, my Facebook post, my Twitter post, my free time is spent on one issue and I'm neglecting all these other issues, I need to take some time to assess what is really going on in my heart. I can't tell you what that looks like, but I want to invite you into the process where you can make it a greater priority. I also want to say this. When you look at the text, we are never in a position as believers where we see the justice system as our ultimate aim and goal for justice. But as believers, the ultimate justice that I'm waiting for will come from Christ. Acts 17, verse 30 and verse 31 says, the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I want to encourage you. Here's the comfort in the text. Jesus Christ will bring final justice. Therefore, I can live in hope and a confident expectation of the great day where Jesus makes all things new. You may be saying this morning, well, preacher, it's been a long time. I mean, Ecclesiastes was written thousands of years ago. Like, why are we waiting? I want to encourage you with Habakkuk chapter number two. Verse three says, for the vision awaits for an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Say it again. If it seems slow, wait for it. If justice seems slow, wait for it. If God making things right seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. 
it will not delay. So first we see that we can live life with comfort because God has promised to bring justice. But secondly, we can live life with contentment. Uh, The first comparison is life with comfort, and the second one is life with contentment. Um, In verse number four, the, the writer makes an observation of working. Verse four says, Then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work uh, come from man's envy of his neighbor. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Please remember that the author has already concluded that work is a gift from God. I know we don't always want to believe that, especially on Sundays when we got to go back to work on Monday. But it's true. The work that we do is directly connected to God. And because the work that we do is connected to God, then we can be content in our work because of God. Please don't miss that. Contentment is not found in the title or the salary or the networking opportunity or the educational advancement. Contentment is found in God. So our Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, There is nothing better for a person than he or she eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work or toil. And since work is from the hand of God, it should always be used to glorify God. The issue is, we keep having to go back to is, who will be pleased with your life? Far too many times, we, we live life just trying our best to please the wrong person, trying to please the professor, trying to please the supervisor, trying to please uh, the parent. And if we're not careful, we will expend all of our energy trying to please people who ultimately do not matter. So our Colossians 3.23, I've got it on the screen again. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not, and for, not for man. The passage is super clear, and I know I've said it and I've read it over and over again, but I would rather say something important a thousand times rather than saying a thousand different things that are unimportant. Colossians 3 tells us that whatever you do, it covers whatever you can think of, your ministry, your teaching, your parenting, your volunteering, your working, your serving, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. But when you do it, make sure you do it to please God and not please man. Now, when you think about the issue of work or toil, it's a reminder that it is clear that God gives us work and God blesses work. But because we have a real enemy called Satan, Satan tries his best to distort what God has meant for good. Satan has a way of distorting every gift that God has given us. Uh, Specifically, the Bible tells us that that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but how many people struggle with body image issues? The Bible tells us very clearly that Satan is the author of lies and the father of confusion. He tries to distort what God means for your good. Galatians 3.28 tells us that there should be neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We are all one in Christ, but Satan tries to distort the unity that we have in Christ with racism and sexism and classism. In particular, we got to understand that that the issues that we face that are, trying to, that are trying to separate us are ultimately from the hands of Satan. 
anytime I have a, 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 un, a undervaluing or a, 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 a less than God honoring valuing of a person, what I'm saying is this person is not created in the image of God. And when I understand that each of us is creating the image and likeness of God, that means that automatically, uh, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of socioeconomics, you deserve value because God says you're valuable. Some of us uh, will be, will be, we would do well to be reminded that, that many of the issues that are in our life are issues that are directly connected to Satan distorting what God has meant for good. I want to say this. You, I hope that you realize that even this morning that an issue like pornography is serious because it's Satan's way of distorting sex. I want to get this straight. Sex was not something nasty that Satan created and God tried to like reclaim and redeem. God created sex for your good, and God created sex to be enjoyed uh, in a covenant relationship. Sex is ordained by God in a covenant relationship that honors God. But pornography is serious because it makes sex to be something that is only meant for selfish selfishness. Uh, it's not about intimacy. It's not about transparency. It's not about a covenant relationship. It is about a transactional activity that I think should please me first. Even the brothers in the room, I know this is not a, got a couple kids in here, but <laughs> they parents let them come in here so they're going to hear it. <laughs> my wife is not my personal porn star. God did not give me my wife to please me sexually. And if I have the mindset that Avita's job is to please me, I have distorted what God has intended for my good. When you look at any of the distortions that Satan has, ultimately he's trying to devalue the blessings that we have in Christ, even with your work. Work is important. We all got to work. We all need to have a job. But when I think about the job that God has given me, we've got to do the hard work to remember that what we do is not who we are. Like what you do for a living does not, should not give you an identity. And so many of us struggle with work and are frustrated with work and are frustrated with what we are in life because we have allowed something in this world to give us an identity that is apart from God. We've allowed something uh, to, to be in a place that it should never be. So the text encourages us to have the proper motivation for what we consider to be work. Instead of me being motivated by envy or being motivated by keeping up with the Joneses or by being motivated uh, to cut corners and lie on my taxes and cheat and steal and run up my credit card, rather than having a lifestyle that is keeping up with something that, that is unattainable, I need to understand that work is something that God has blessed me with. And it's an opportunity for me to work in such a way where I can be content. I mean, how many of us... I'm not going to call anybody this morning. But how many of us would just love to go do some retail therapy today, right? How many of us would just love to go buy something because it would just make us feel better? Go buy a new car. Go buy a new, uh, a new Gucci purse. Go buy some red bottoms. We want to go and buy something because we think that that's going to make us happy. It's going to make us full. 
when in reality the text reminds us that it is the fool who has the perspective that something in their hands will satisfy their heart. So rather than running this, this rat race of laziness and uncontentment, we need to grasp the reality that God has blessed us with everything that we need. One of the scriptures that consistently comes back into my heart that God has given us everything pertaining to godliness in life. The Lord has blessed me with the things that I need. Verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving. Quietness and toil are are compared here. This, This idea of quietness is a commitment to contentment. And once again, it's okay to pray for more. It's okay to desire more. It's okay to want to advance. But the question is, do the, have these things uh, held my heart hostage so much so, so much so that I am focused more on the gifts than the giver of the gifts? When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was a worker. Uh, he was a servant. He was humble, but he was he was more than content with what his father gave him. There's a story of a little girl who misquoted Psalm 23, um, but in misquoting Psalm 23, she gives us a powerful principle. She says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She memorized it, she memorized it, she memorized it, and it got to the place where she didn't say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She got to the place where she would say, the Lord is my shepherd, and that is all that I want. And some of us would do well with lifting up our desire for God more so than our desire for stuff. So we can live life with comfort. Secondly, we can live life with contentment. And thirdly, we can live life with companionship. To live, life, to live the life that God desires for us, we certainly need comfort. You need to know that God will bring justice forth. To live life in such a way that honors the Lord, we certainly need contentment. We need to understand that God has promised to provide. He always provides us good things. But lastly, we need to understand that God has called us to live a life of companionship. Verse 7 says, again I say, uh, vanity under the sun. One person who has, uh, who has no other, uh, neither son nor brother, Yet there was no end to his toil, and his eyes were never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Here the author tells us the sad tale of uh, solitary confinement. The person is not mentioned by name, um, but they live just to work. Uh, If they have a wife, she's not mentioned, so maybe this is the biography of a bachelor. Even if they do have a wife, they have no heir, they have no brother. They are just working not to bless other people, but just to bless themselves. And as the author looked at the man's life, he saw that at the end of his life, all he saw was vanity. He was working so hard that he could not enjoy what God had given him. He was working so hard that it led him to isolation, to selfishness, to greed, and to a sinful addiction of work. Uh, There's a movie called American Beauty, and one of the characters, Carolyn Burnham, in the story is a mother, and she's trying to teach her daughter how to cope with the disappointments of life. And she says, you're old enough now to learn the most important lesson in life. 
You cannot count on anyone except yourself. It's sad but true, but the sooner you learn it, the better you'll be. It's a lie. Living for ourselves and working for ourselves or simply believing in ourselves is one of the fastest ways to turn the American dream into a nightmare. Ecclesiastes has taught us that work can bring us pleasure as long as we work within our purpose. Verse 8 asks a question that we need to ask today. For whom am I toiling? Let me make it a little bit more contemporary. When you go to work tomorrow, for whom are you working? Like if you've got to go to work later on today, for whom are you working? If you've got to answer an email this afternoon, for whom are you working? For whom are you striving for? For the Christian, the question for whom am I working is a question that will cause us to give God honor and glory or will cause us to dishonor God with our life. There's a um, story about a businessman uh, from Minneapolis. Um, A young lady named Ellen Goodman um, was writing a story and she wanted to present um, the story about this man. He died when he was at the age of 51. His obituary said that the cause of death was uh, coronary thrombosis. But most people knew better. Uh, he was at the office six days a week. He would often work to eight or nine o'clock at night each night. Uh, his friends and family said that he simply worked himself to death. And on the day of his funeral, the company was already looking for his replacement. The saddest thing about his life is at the funeral, uh, someone came up to his wife and they said, I know how much you'll miss him. And her response was, you don't know how much I already missed him. It's, it's, it's a truth that we got to work and we got to grind. We got to make things important. But I hope and pray that we don't work in such a way where the things that are most important are neglected. That's why the scripture tells us that two are better than one. It's a simple comparison because it gives us a reminder that we are not called to live life by ourselves. Um, whenever my kids go on, a, um, go on a field trip, they, they use the buddy system. That means that they have to have a partner, right? Uh, the buddy system is not just good for elementary kids. It's good for every single believer. God has called you to be in relationship with others. And it's unfortunate that there are too many of us who have allowed competitiveness and uh, the pursuit of happiness to cause us to be out of relationship We need to understand that togetherness is always better than loneliness, that connection is always better than competition, that we will always be better together than we are separate, and the passage gives us a reminder that there is a good reward for our toil. The person in verse 8 is the one who worked too much, but there's also another person who did not work enough. There's some of us who fall in the category of trying to keep up with the Joneses and trying to work hard and grind hard, but there's another group that simply doesn't doesn't have a desire to work. We know that we're not going to ever make it. We know we'll never keep up with the Joneses, and rather than grinding hard and rather than working hard, we just say, I'll just lie in my bed and be lazy. Both extremes are unbiblical and both extremes are totally unhealthy. 
when you look at the text, the, the text gives us this powerful picture of two people coming together who are on a journey and they're able to give warmth and encouragement and work together. When you think about it, uh, the, the, the culture was a, a culture they did not have cars or planes. Uh, it was a culture where they had to literally uh, travel together through the desert and the desert would be cold at night. And, and if two people were traveling together, they would sleep close together because they would, they would need the warmth to keep them safe and protected. But part of the reason why we come to church and part of the reason why we do life together is we need the warmth that only comes from Christian fellowship. Like, hopefully, my, my, my hope and prayer is that when you're a part of God's fellowship, when you're a part of God's body, that there's some warmth that, that you receive from the church that you can't get in the world. I hope that you get some encouragement, uh, some people to do life with you. I brag on Karen. Last, uh, two weeks ago, she was, uh, she was at work. She got a call from one of our members, and one of the members needed a ride, and she took one of the members to the hospital, and she stayed there with him. And I was here at church, and she stayed there long enough to, to keep a member of our church without being by themselves. She provided warmth. And in providing that warmth, it was an opportunity for someone in our church to be encouraged. I hope and pray that, that once again, when we come, it's not just about me hearing a good word and me hearing a good message and me hearing something that blesses me, but I hope I come with the mindset of I'm coming to provide warmth to somebody who's cold. I'm coming to speak a word of encouragement to somebody who's struggling. I'm coming to pray with and pray for somebody who needs, uh, some, needs a brother or a sister to come alongside them. Because if it's just about me, then once again, I'm not living the life that God has called me to live. I am so far gone in my notes. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. Let me jump to verse 12, and I'll I'll cover it in Bible study. When when you look at the end, you see very clearly that in the text, the writer of Ecclesiastes goes from speaking about two, and then he introduces the idea of a three-strand chord. It, It is great to have fellowship in your life. It is great to have good friends on your job or have sorority sisters or sorority brothers. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I and Andy just have a good partnership and that partnership is not rooted and grounded in Christ, that that partnership will always be lacking. The the passage reminds us that the cord or the, the tie that holds us together it's not our political affiliation or not where we go to church. It's not where we live. It's not my vocation. It's not how many kids I have. The core that ties us together is Christ, which means that the most significant relationships we have should be significant relationships with other believers. Yes, I have great friendships uh, with people who are not Christians. I have a hilarious group text with some of my guys from high school and sometimes I have to get off of it because it gets a little too crazy and then I jump back on in a couple months but, but there are guys who I love but they don't have a relationship with Jesus so it's, it's, the relationship can only go so far because the most significant, significant and deep and, and impactful relationships in my life have to be relationships with other believers because here's the truth. The Bible tells us that how can two walk together unless they agree? 
So here are our points of application today. We think about, and you come on up, Chris. We think about the text. We think about what God has clearly said in chapter number three through chapter number four. We have an opportunity to show comfort, okay? We exude comfort when we care for those who are being oppressed. You and I have a responsibility to be engaged in the dialogue, but also the fight against injustice in any way, shape, or form. Not just the things that are near and dear to my heart, but I want you to ask yourself the question, and this is a great personal Bible study. What are the things that are near and dear to the heart of God? And if I look at my list of things that are near and dear to me, and it's not compatible with the list that's near and dear to the heart of God, then I've got to ask God to change my heart and to give me new affections so that his list becomes my list. It's not my list becoming God's list. It's God's list becoming my list. So number one, we exude comfort when we care for those who are being oppressed. Secondly, we experience contentment when we appreciate what God has provided. Everybody here, if you look close enough, you could figure out some things that God has not provided. But that's not true. God is not giving you things that you desire. God is not giving you things that you want. But all we have needed, God's hand has provided. We, we truly do not deserve anything from God. Well, well, let me say it this way. What we most deserve is death and eternal separation because of sin. But because God loves us and because God is patient and compassionate with us, God gives us his grace. And because God gives me more than I could ever deserve, everything God gives me is, is something that I need to appreciate and be thankful for. So yes, we experience contentment. We appreciate what God has provided. But lastly, we enjoy companionship when we focus on relationships that are rooted and grounded in Christ first. 